Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, we've got a lot of fun stuff this week, but before we get into it, I uh, just wanted to remind you that if you want to help support the show, if you like what we're doing, and you want to give back and help support spreading science, uh, all you got to do is use the Amazon link that we have on this week's episode, pretty much any week's episode, or the homepage at todayinspace.net slash home. And what you just got to do there is simple. All you got to do is, is shop like you usually do. Cost you nothing, and Amazon kicks us back a little bit for sending you their way. It's a great win-win, and uh, you're helping keep the lights on here and help help the magic go forward here. So uh, thank you uh, for that. Uh, this week, we got some super fun stuff we're going to be talking about. I saw Star Wars for the first time, so we'll get into that. That'll be the first thing. Uh, we'll talk about SpaceX's Jason 3 launch and the experimental landing on the spaceport drone ship. Uh, just read the instructions. Uh, we're also going to go over Tim Peake's first spacewalk and what ended the mission early for them. And finally, we'll talk about growing plants in space. That's right. There's a lot of crazy shit going on. Another first this week on uh, the International Space Station. We'll get into all of that real soon. Thanks for listening. Here we go. And if you hear some weird editing when we're talking about the SpaceX and what Elon Musk posted online, I had to insert Instagram because apparently I don't know the difference between that or a Vine. So enjoy that. Today in space. Welcome, everybody, back to the show. What's happening? It is January 21st, 2016. I can't believe January is almost over, but that's that's how it is when you're busy, I guess. Uh, time just goes, woo! Just flies by. But anyways, uh, lots of cool stuff, man. How's your week been? I mean, that's really good. Good, I hope so. Um, it's been pretty good for me, you know, staying focused. Um, got a bunch of projects done to keep me motivated. Uh, during the second shift life. Um, but the most important thing that happened this past week in my life was I finally saw Star Wars. Now, if you're new to the show, uh, I have been very anti-Star Wars uh, ever since, really, the trailers have been coming out and everyone's been freaking out about Star Wars. Uh, Sarah, a guest on the show, actually called me a hipster for my hatred of it, but... What are you going to do? That's just how it is. Now, I, what I wanted to do was watch it the way I wanted to when I had a chance to so I could enjoy it. You know, I don't need to go when everyone else is going and, yeah, you know, clapping when someone enters the screen. That shit drives me crazy. So I had the chance to go. Uh, this is the first time I ever did those Lux level seats. Have you guys seen those before? Um, brilliant, brilliant business idea i mean you know if you want people to come in and and uh and pay money and watch a movie and have a great experience which is really what it's about they're doing an amazing job at that um the staff was courteous um they wanted to help out any way they could you could get drinks if you're 21 plus obviously and you know, you could get food during the show, and you're in the back, and the seats recline, the leather. It was just incredible. It was awesome. I went on uh, Martin Luther King Day, um, did a matinee, and uh, it was really interesting, the people that were there. Uh, it was all, you know, middle-aged, 
uh, people who had the day off who finally had a chance to go see the movie. Uh, they're all talking about, oh, this is great, you know, oh, this is this is fun. So that was really cool. Never did that before. Now for the movie, now, I, I I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna give a spoiler away, but you probably want to fast forward about a minute, maybe two minutes from now, just so that way I don't ruin anything for you. It's I loved it. I loved it. I really didn't have any complaints. Um, and the complaints I had were really lame, you know, really sciencey, like, oh, you got it wrong. Um, but no, I, I love what they're doing with the new era. They're almost washing their hands clean of the first two. And well, one and two, the prequels. Uh, and I, I like where they're going with it. Um, but like I said, I'm not going to give much away. The only real problem I had is it, it's it just there, there was one big part where it was just like Disney, come on, like you can't let the science just go when you take on a franchise like Star Wars, right? There's one scene where the star had been consumed, right, and it destroys the thing. Uh, the so the star gets consumed. Sorry, I'm being really general here. The star gets consumed, and then later, that thing that consumed it gets destroyed by an implosion, and then just ever so gently just becomes the same star it was before it was consumed. There's no fucking way that will ever happen. You can't just slowly strip a star apart and then put it back together like a bunch of puzzle pieces. The mass of it is massive. The force it's capable of the forces are immense, right? Disturbing that will take forever in our time for it to come to equilibrium again. Equilibrium again. So that little piece of Disney magic, I wasn't a big fan of. Because it's just like, you can't get the science wrong in a movie called Star Wars. You know, there's not much. I mean, yes, could you say the Death Star exploded and they had fire? Well, that wouldn't happen in space. Given the time, that's acceptable. Nowadays, it's not acceptable. Given the amount of budget and the amount of people that would have loved to help who were scientifically literate, that could have just come in to say, do we have this right? And they, they could have helped that for you. But that's my lame, my lame thing that I didn't like. So say, see, whatever you think... Um, I'm very happy with what they're doing with the relaunch or the reboot of the trilogy. I'm not as excited as I was about the Star Trek reboot, but they're totally different stories. And you have to do Star Wars in three movies, where Star Trek, you can kind of get away with a movie at a time to tell a story. But that's because the characters are already set up. You know, they're also creating the characters during the Star Wars movies, so it's a bit different. But I digress. Star Wars, worth watching it. Go see it if you haven't already. I'm sure you've already seen it. Uh, I was a late one to the party. But I enjoyed it, and I'm not hating as much as I used to. So let's move on. Okay, so first this week, let's talk about the SpaceX Jason 3 launch and the experimental landing on the Spaceport drone ship. Uh, just read the instructions. Uh, I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that. Uh, I... I didn't know the reference. I guess it's a big reference to some sci-fi film. You're going to have to Google that. I didn't have time to get to that this week. But what I did get to was 
what the Jason 3 satellite is, and that's uh, it's a NASA satellite. And if you go to the NOAA website, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, they go over what Jason 3 is, and here's, here's what they have to say. Jason 3 is the newest satellite in a series designed to maintain long-term satellite altimetry observations of global sea surface height. This, these data provide critical ocean information that forecasters need to predict devastating hurricanes and severe weather before they arrive onshore. Over the long term, Jason 3 will help us track global sea level rise and increasing threat to the resilience of coastal communities and to the health of our environment. So a pretty, pretty valuable satellite that's going to tell us how much the ocean is rising and really monitor tons of things, ocean, um, ocean tides that will be able to warn people of massive storms coming off the ocean onto our shores. I mean, it's pretty much exactly what they said, just said a little bit differently. But it, it's it's a very cool satellite. Um, and it's the third one, but I don't think it's the third in the series. I think it's actually fourth. There was another one before it, but um, we'll see if I can find that here. But let's go over really what's different things that they... What, what can the Jason satellite, Jason 3, do? So um, it's going to have hurricane intensity forecasting, surface wave forecasting for offshore operators, uh, forecasting tides and currents for commercial shipping and ship routing, uh, coastal forecasting for response to environmental problems like oil spills and harmful algal blooms. Or is it algal? I'm not sure. A-L-G-A-L. Who knows? Uh, coastal modeling crucial for marine mammal and coral reef research and El Nino and La Nina forecasting. Um, and this is a, a huge partnership globally. This is has the uh, French uh, space agency CNES, a CNES, the European Organization for the Exploitation of Meteorological Satellites, or UMETSAT. Uh, and, of course the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, a.k.a. NASA. So um, definitely something that's valuable to global um, resources. I mean, shipping lanes alone, uh, being able to forecast that stuff is huge because you don't really want a tanker coming across the ocean going over because you didn't know there was a storm there. Uh, so obviously big money um, and really just need... Uh, worldwide for that. So that's amazing. SpaceX launched it, uh, it seemed, flawlessly. Uh, the Falcon 9 performed uh, fantastic once again. Uh, there was another big broadcast, and uh, I actually had a chance to watch it. It was, it was really cool, um, because again, they were, uh, you know, I, they, they do these bursts where they do landings. Uh, you know, the last one, the most historic of all of them, um, the first time they landed the first stage of course it was on the easier ground um you know wind speeds uh matching the motion um the ground is stay is steady you know it's not like the barge in the ocean um one of the big things i noticed about this one because uh, i've seen a few of the landings attempted landings uh this one seemed to be the most calm weather um the last few they just had some offshore winds and just stormy waters that just looked nasty um, 
But uh, right before the first stage rocket was about to land, uh, the satellite feed went out. Um, so of course everyone on Twitter is like, oh my God, like the satellite feed went down. Some people were like, oh, that totally means it destroyed itself. Um, cause of course conspiracy theories start immediately as soon as something happens that people are interested in. Um, but Elon Musk put up later a video, uh, on his Instagram, uh, showing what happened when it tried to land. Now, when it came down, uh, the... Falcon 9 released the legs. The speed looked great. It looked just like the landing uh, on land that happened last week. Uh, it looked really good. But what happened apparently is that uh, one of the collets that holds the leg, one of the four legs, you know, straight and stiff, um, so that way it locks in, uh, didn't work. So the satellite, uh, the satellite, the rocket, uh, the Falcon 9 started tipping slowly and it just, you're just watching it painfully fall over and then it was a fantastic explosion. I, I love the explosive shots that we get from these landing attempts, but they did it. Like, like they, they did it. Other than the fact that the leg didn't work, like everything about that experimental landing worked really well the leg the, whatever the bones of the legs are made of um you know the the biggest most whatever the biggest parts of the landing leg still worked really well i, I do have to say that um only the joints and like the secondary parts that were probably made of something smaller or at the very least would break first those things definitely snapped, but the leg, even though no one had any control over it, tried to keep the rocket up. If you look at the Instagram, and it'll be on this week's episode, it, it looked like it was, it worked really well. Like, it didn't look like the leg really deformed or bent or anything like that. It was just the, the, the joints that broke. So, considering, that's all considering the fact that, you know, as the rocket tips, it's getting heavier and heavier. So, that's great. That's awesome. Um, it's really, it's an all around success. I mean, if people are looking at it limitedly and saying, oh, they, you know, they failed again, it's like, you really don't have an understanding of the process that they're going through. I've been watching these for, for, I think since I haven't watched every single one, but I've been watching since they started uh, recording these uh, and, and really trying them out and putting them up for everyone to see. And this was a huge improvement from the last landing. Um, again, the weather seemed to be the best that we've had it for this try, but um, it looks like they've done a lot of work on, on really on that catch as, as the rocket's coming back in. That, that boost back burn seems to be like it, it helped so much. Um, and that's when the first stage gets released uh, from the second stage that's delivering the cargo into orbit, uh, it does this turn where it basically flips over itself, and if I'm not mistaken, and slows down the Falcon 9 so that it can make its landing. Uh, in the last few times, you know, uh, there was one that came in way too fast um, laterally. Um, didn't really make it. The other one, uh, they just, just got it where like the butt of the rocket just kind of like 
bumped on the bottom. And, uh, you know, the rocket obviously didn't survive and it wasn't a good landing. But um, this one, they had it. They, they had the touch, the feel of the landing right. The only thing that didn't work was one of the legs. So it's a glorious success in Today in Space's opinion. Uh, congratulations to the whole team. Uh, I love watching everything that they do. And let's give credit to whoever thought up the idea of calling it experimental landing because that takes a lot of the uh, misinterpretation of what they're trying to do. And it gives it kind of a cool... Like, anytime you say it's an experimental something, there's a, there's a bit of a wow factor to it. Um, so as far as a marketing or... Uh, social networking, or just promotion-wise, brilliant. I fucking love that. So uh, great job all around SpaceX. You guys are coming out of your last failure with flying colors. So keep up the great work, and can't wait to see what you have coming up next for us. So you can catch all that information on this week's episode in the space links. You'll have the uh, full uh, broadcast and the coverage from SpaceX from their website. You'll have the Elon Musk Instagram, the rocket attempting to land on the spaceport drone ship, and uh, you'll also have uh, a link to the NOAA so you can read more about the Jason 3 satellite and the awesome stuff that it's doing in space, thanks to SpaceX. In the deep dark of the third zone. We are forced to open our minds to new possibilities. The newest research on the Kuiper Belt objects reveals a shocking theory. In order to explain how the Kuiper Belt objects move beyond the normal planets, there must be a ninth planet, a giant icy world that has been invisible to us until now. Caltech's research. This revelation in thinking came from the strange observation of the most distant objects in our solar system. What was strange was the way that these distant objects orbit around our sun. It shouldn't behave the way that it does, unless there's another super distant massive planet orbiting just as strangely. And of course by strange I mean not the way we understand it now. The researchers were rightfully skeptical, as Mike Brown, a professor of planetary astronomy, who discussed the research, put it, this must be either a coincidence or it's just caused by something else. We started looking at this, this must be either a coincidence or it's caused by something else. It can't be caused by a planet because that's crazy, there are no planets out there. And from trying very hard to be skeptical, that what we were talking about is true to suddenly thinking, oh, this actually might even be true. Now for some facts. This new planet is guessed to weigh in somewhere between Earth size and Neptune size. 
or 1 to 10 times the mass of Earth. Its orbit is 20 times bigger than the orbit of Neptune. And if Earth's orbital period is one year, then this new planet's orbital period is... Wait for it. 20,000 years. Yeah, 20,000 years for it to go around the sun once. What? So, needless to say, there is going to be research done to find this planet. We will hunt down this new planet and find out for damn sure whether we have nine planets in our system. And shockingly, it won't be Pluto. In the search to find out if the ninth planet that was Pluto is a planet, we might have actually found another planet that we didn't even know was there. Like, like, it's crazy. it's crazy, but that's the beauty, that's of, science. The beauty of science, and the beauty of discovery. discovery. Tim Peake, Britain's own and first citizen astronaut, uh, had his first spacewalk this week. So let's go to the International Space Station blog and find out what happened. NASA astronaut Tim Copra and ESA astronaut Tim Peake completed the primary task for their mission spacewalk on January 15, 2016, before it was ended early by Mission Control Houston. The astronauts replaced a failed voltage regulator that caused a loss of power last November. Now, the EVA ended early due to a small water bubble that had formed inside Tim Copra's helmet. Now, it may not seem like that much of a disaster, but because uh, it wasn't, the crew was never in any danger and returned to the airlock in an orderly fashion, but a water bubble in your spacesuit is not good. <laughs> Uh, unexpected things floating around inside, not very good, especially since water has been known to be used for protection against radiation. So if your water is leaking inside, that means you might be losing protection against the radiation in space. But the four hour and 43 minute spacewalk was the third for Copra and the first for Peak, who both arrived at the station December 15th, and it was the 192nd in support of assembly and maintenance of the orbiting laboratory. Thank you, International Space Station blog, for keeping us up to date on all the stuff that our men and women are doing up on the orbiting space lab apartment. Now, let's talk about growing plants in space. Why are we talking about it? You know, it's a pretty good question. Planting, growing plants, planting plants, growing plants on board, <coughs> excuse me, growing plants on board is going to be necessary, essential to uh, trips to Mars, given the duration. So there's a lot of research in um, growing plants in space and becoming an autonomous uh, uh, garden or autonomous uh, uh, vegetation on board. So they got to learn how to how to cultivate and grow um, 
actual plants in space. So the goal is tomatoes. So they need to work their way up through uh, the different plants to gain experience and then uh, test the difficulty of growing the next more difficult plant to grow. So why we're talking about it this week is because the first flower that was ever grown in space was uh, bloomed and uh, Scott Kelly uh, aboard the ISS took a fantastic picture of it online and it, it really hit the internet hard. It's a zinnia, uh, if, I, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, is uh, is in the picture. It, it It's very interesting. A few things you'll notice. Um, it looks, well, first of all, it looks very similar to an earth flower. And uh, there's actually, apparently, from the research, some science to back that up, why that would be that way. Um, but little uh, interesting things, uh, the petals were curved the other way, so up, uh, instead of down like they would be with uh, gravity and it being heavier. Um, so that's a very interesting difference. Um, and of course, you know, a little bit of the color. And uh, as we'll find out later, the size is affected as well. So uh, let's get into it and talk about the next phase after space lettuce, the space zinnia. So the space zinnia, uh, the whole story of it blossoming on the ISS this past week is a very interesting story. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. There'll be a link to what Scott Kelly had posted on Twitter about growing in space. And it, it, it goes over the entire chain of events that happened really over the past month. Uh, Scott Kelly was looking after them after... Uh, Jell Lindgren uh, returned back home and went back to Earth. So uh, during the, I think it was Christmas, uh, it might have even been Christmas Eve, Scott Kelly was checking on it and the head of the project uh, back on Earth uh, got a phone call in the early morning, like three in the morning, and then they, because Scott Kelly was saying, hey, these plants, are they're, they're dying. You know, I need their, they look super dry, um, oh no, I'm sorry, the first thing that happened was the flowers started showing water droplets on the leaf edges, which apparently indicates uh, gutation, it's guttation, G-U-T-T-A-T-I-O-N, and what gutation is, or gut, yeah, gutation, is when the internal pressure builds and forces excess water out of the tips of the leaves. Uh, and it happens when the plant has really high humidity. And it was also showing uh, signs of epinasty, which is when the leaves curl. Uh, and it indicates that the, plants, the plant has stress, which, again, is another indication of high humidity. So the team down on Earth made a plan to have Scott Kelly uh, run the fans up high to you know, get the air drier. Oh, and, and the main thing that I totally forgot was because of the high humidity, there were actually uh, there was actually mold growing on these plants. So basically, Scott Kelly had to uh, dissect and and sanitize and you know get the plant back to normal, get rid of the mold, and then keep it in a freezer so that we can work on it when it gets back home. <laughs> Don't throw it out. We need it for science. 
Um, so that happens. The fans turn on, and then guess what happens? They get a another thing that happens where the plants are actually drying out. The fans were drying out the crop too much, and Scott Kelly was like, "Hey, I pretty sh- I, like these need more water." Um, but the but they were like, "Oh, we'll just put it in on the next watering, which was December twenty seventh, and this was on Christmas Eve." So. Christmas Eve, three days later, like, these plants are probably going to die. So, uh, a really cool thing happened. The The ground team and Scott Kelly worked on a plan to make sure that now astronauts have more say in the decision-making for onboard growing of their plants. So that's pretty, you know, there's, there's tons of procedures, and it, it, it does, it makes... A lot of sense. It really does. Because who's going to be up there on a mission to Mars? Ultimately, who's making the decisions? It's the crew on board. Um, So the procedures are there to keep people safe and to get science done. You know, they're not really there to hinder people, but sometimes they do. Um, And and the team and Scott Kelly, they came up with this great idea. Uh, And uh, it's really cool. So now... (laughs) Scott Kelly is now taking care of him. He he's become an autonomous gardener aboard the space station, as the uh, the NASA article talks about it. And uh, Smith himself said, "This is perfect. He has the helm. We turned over care to Scott, and he's seen the lettuce. He's got all the tools he needs. So we just provided him with quick guidelines to understand the zinnias. And uh, the veggie team created." Uh, the Zinnia Care Guide for the On-Orbit Gardener. Uh, it's a one-page, really short, just instructional on things to do. Like, that doesn't get any more streamlined or... Like, that's that's a job well done. Like, that's great. Like, that's that's giving people information quickly and how they need to use it. You know, that's there's no ego. It's just we go, as uh, <laughs> apparently uh, Wim Hof says, which, big fan of that man, uh, go check him out, the Iceman, anyways, the plants, uh, originally, during that week, like, uh, Scott Kelly was taking pictures of the plants as they seemed to be dying, and, uh, managed to, as he was saying, channel some inner Mark, Mark Watney, uh, and saved the plants, you know, so, uh, really cool time on, on the International Space Station right now. Uh, this plant habitat has only been there since 2014. Uh, so we're going to see a whole bunch of really cool stuff. And one of the really interesting things that the research uh, says, which is in this article, the research says that, uh, and this is through just understanding how plants grow, and this definitely helped out, is that plants actually seem to have a real earthly instinct, apparently, as, as the research put it. Um, you know, for a very long time, uh, forever, actually, um, people were under the impression that plants growing in space wouldn't be able to or would lack the ability to because, you know, the way they root, and which is essential for their survival and their nutrients, uh, is dependent on gravity, which makes sense. I mean, they go in the direction of gravity right to to root them down 
so they don't move. But for some reason, uh, the plants <clears throat> seem to have this instinct. I'm sorry, I've got something in my throat. Um, so it's it's that's very interesting to know that plants uh, can do that, you know, and because we've talked about earlier on the show on another episode, I believe it's Sex in Space. Uh, you know, when they did experiments with rats on the, uh, I think it was the Mir station and uh, one of the, the, the early space stations, uh, they noticed that the rats that developed uh, in space uh, lacked a common thing where the rats would know which way to turn. They knew which way the ground was. And the ones that were born in space lacked that ability. So to see that plants are able to do that too, um, it makes life surviving any kind of life forms that are traveling on a, a comet or uh, a rogue asteroid or a planet that's already there. You know, it it it's it could survive in different conditions like different gravity, which opens up a whole uh, new search for life. I would think. <coughs> Yeah, I think I think that would make a lot of sense. Like now we know, okay, you know, if the gravity's not strong, there still could be life there. Um, you also beg the question, uh, or at least the thoughts in my head do. Uh, don't worry, I'm still in control. Um, <laughs> you know, do they only have that instinct because they were developed here? If they were developed on a different planet, they would have probably those planets' instincts, right? So, uh, I'm inferring a lot, but, you know, if that were true, that's, that's pretty amazing. That's, you know, that, that makes space travel, uh, very interesting because it, it, from what I've seen and from what we've gone over on the show, it seems like most things need to develop on earth and then they can go into the harsher environments because, you know, with just just the few experiments we've seen on, on the development of a being, like the rats, for instance, you know, we know there are things that they, they lack, especially just uh, normal function, motor functions, some brain functions, um, muscular stuff. Develop on Earth, and then you'll be able to adapt to the different uh, environments. So... I think that's really the best way to go. You do small stints, you know, uh, you go back to Earth for your vacation out of, uh, for, you know, rehab, basically, <coughs> and you just go out. Sorry about that, guys. You just have to go out and for like nine months, we'll just say for nine months and come back for three, you know, um, and, and what they're doing on the International Space Station and with, with all the countries working on that, they're all really trying to figure out ways to diminish the space effects that happen to your body, you know, the, the uh, redu reduction in blood flow because it doesn't have to fight gravity so that some arteries in the heart get smaller and they don't have to pump as much, your blood pressure drops, and, you know, all these different changes, if we can mitigate the effects of it with a training program up there, then great. And it's almost the same thing. It's simulating the environment that we developed in to help us stay good. So 
I mean, really what we need is artificial gravity. That would be fantastic. <laughs> that would solve a lot of problems. But we don't have that right now, so we might as well learn. And uh, <laughs> I think that's it, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Today in Space podcast. Uh, you know, coming up, we've got some really cool things. Uh, but before I tell you about that, make sure to go out on this January night uh, before it gets too much later because this is the first time in over a decade. I originally thought it was the 70s, but apparently it's over a decade uh, that we're, we have five planets visible in our night sky right now. Um, I mean, I'm sure this is probably for the night sky for anyone in the United States. If there's anyone from another country, I would look that up. But uh, there are plenty of resources out there for it. Uh, it's it's a spectacle. It really is. Uh, just go go check it out and soak in, you know, what you're looking at. And just enjoy it. You know, there's no reason to be scared of it. It's always there, whether you <laughs> think it's there or not. So the fact that you are finally feeling, you know, worried about it is kind of silly. So enjoy it. Uh, bask in the wonder of it and uh, look up that's it's I've been trying to do it for about every night that it's clear I go outside and uh, look up I'm I'm starting to learn the constellations you know I'm approaching it as kind of anything else I approach it's consistency and observation and just working at it you know just putting the time in so I'm, I'm living my brand and I'm um, doing this, and it's really cool. It's uh, fun to watch the sky, the constellations turn. It, it really is. Uh, I've also noticed for the first time in my life <laughs> the difference between a new moon and a full moon sky. Uh, it's... <laughs> I don't know why I never noticed that before, but, I mean, light pollution here is pretty terrible, so it wouldn't make that much of a difference. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, that's about it, guys. Uh, enjoy your week. And remember, if you want to help uh, support the show, uh, all you got to use is the Amazon link. Uh, bookmark it if you want to make it real easy for yourself. And uh, every time you want to help support, just click click that banner. And uh, it's as easy as that. Costs you nothing and uh, sends us a little bit from back from Amazon for sending it there. And uh, every little bit helps. We are. We are. Uh, in the midst of assembling the team for the first science project to be funded by uh, all your donations. So uh, we're doing it on uh, on a budget, and uh, we'll share all the science. We'll be able to meet the, the team, and uh, we'll follow us all the way to our mission. Um, I know I said we'd vote. Uh, we will do a vote in the future, but uh, this one is uh just a great first start so all the mystery behind it we'll we'll talk about in the future i don't know when the team's got to assemble assemble and uh we'll you'll you'll start meeting the team uh if not you've already met some of the team uh that's how we do it here um and it's gonna be a lot of fun guys so uh thank you for listening uh remember spread love Spread science and have a great week, everybody. See you next time.